If you want to turn to Mark 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. We're in a sermon series in Mark's gospel uh, that we started um, earlier this year, actually, and just after Easter. And we are in our, we took a break over the summer, we're in our 20th week in Mark's gospel, and uh, we are looking at verses 35 to 41. Our, our kind of modus operandi here is to land ourselves in a book of the Bible and just kind of slowly make our way through it and uh, in, in letting God's word determine the, the focus and direction and content of uh, the preaching here at Veritas. Uh, we want to show forth what God's word says to us. Um, that's the purpose of preaching and uh, so that's why we're just slowly working our way through Mark's gospel. We're in Mark 4, 35 through 41. Uh, when you get there, if you want to stand with me, and we will read God's word and pray, and we'll dig into explaining, applying, and proclaiming what God's word says to us today. Mark 4, 35 through 41, Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boats were already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? But he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea and said to the sea, rather, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would anoint and bless the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the year was 1735. John and Charles Wesley were aboard a ship voyaging from England to America. And they had been enthused by the idea of preaching the gospel to the Native American peoples here, and so they were on their way. And it was on that ship then that John Wesley's writings show us he had an encounter that would lead to his life being changed forever. The encounter involved a a group of Christians that we call the Moravians. They were a, a pietist group from Germany. And Wesley, leading up to this event, had already been struck by their their character and their humility, their their meekness, 
Uh, he remarks in his writings that even before the night of this event, of this encounter, he had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior. He says, of their humility, they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done more for them. He goes on to write that, that every day had given them occasion of showing a meekness which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouth. These people had a deep humility and a strong meekness about them. But then there was one night, Wesley says, that there was now an opportunity of trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as that of pride, anger, and revenge. One night, a, a massive storm came and, and began to rage against their ship. As the winds howled and the, the lightning struck and the rains and waves beat against the ship, the English passengers were, were panicked. They were crippled by fear and anxiety. And then Wesley notes, not the Moravians. In fact, they were all calmly and worshipfully singing a psalm. And during their worship service, the, the, the dangers only escalated. At one point, Wesley says, the sea broke over the ship and split the mainsail in pieces. He says, water covered the ship and poured in between the decks, filling the cabins where they were all holding out during the storm. He said it was as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung on. He says, I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, Wesley said, I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth not. Fear is a complicated matter, isn't it? Now, on the one hand, we love fear, don't we? We love to be afraid. Stephen King once said that um, you know, people love to be scared, and I love scaring people. And I probably don't need to say much to, to prove this to you, since today is, after all, Halloween. It's literally a holiday that has all sorts of commercial activity around it, surrounding us having fun with being afraid. We pursue being afraid as kind of a form of entertainment today. And, of course, it's not just on Halloween. I mean, th there's a reason that horror flicks and shows do so well, right? It's, we like it. But then there's a darker side to our fears, isn't there? A 2020 study from LifeWay Research asked Americans what emotion they would most like to be free of and avoid. About 13% said that they didn't know. 22% said guilt. 24% said shame. And a whopping 41% said fear. Which is a significant change from the, the same question in a study just four years earlier, 2016, which said that, the, that shame was the top emotion that people wanted to be freed from, followed by guilt, and then fear being last. 
Likewise, in the same 2020 study, Americans were asked about three issues in their lives that if they could remove for good what they would choose, the choices were wrongdoing, humiliation, and anxiety. Almost 50% of Americans responded with saying that anxiety was the one thing that if they could, above all else, they would remove from their lives for good. We are a fearful and anxious people. And this shouldn't surprise us. We, we are surrounded by what many are calling a culture of fear, which is selling fear to us at every turn. Michael Reeves, in his wonderful book, Rejoice and Tremble, he says that these days it seems that everyone is talking about this culture of fear. From Twitter to television, we fret about global terrorism, extreme weather, pandemics, and political turmoil. In political campaigns and elections, we routinely see fear rhetoric used by politicians who recognize that fear drives voting patterns. And in our digitalized world, the speed at which information and news are disseminated means that we are flooded with more causes of worry than ever. Fears that once we would never have shared cross the world in seconds and are globally pooled. Now, what if I told you That while you'll never be entirely free from the emotion of fear on this side of glory, you can be increasingly freed from its crippling and controlling you. You can be a person who responds to fearful circumstances with courage and peace and resilience and contentedness and rest, not because your circumstances change, mind you. Not because your circumstances all become easy or painless, but because you change as a result of knowing Christ and who he is for us. That's what this passage is all about. Here Jesus is showing us that he is Lord of the storm. And he thus invites our faith and fear, a faith and fear which overwhelms and overcomes all other fears. And in this passage here, the outline is is pretty obvious. If you look at it, you see three great occurrences and then three questions that follow those great occurrences. And so we're just going to let the structure of this text structure our exposition of it as we dig in. First, seeing the great storm. Look at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So here is this great storm that Jesus and the disciples encounter. Of course, Jesus has been teaching throughout the entirety of this day. It can be a little misleading Uh, that we have spent about a month in Mark chapter 4 already unpacking these parables because all of these were told, it seems, in the same day. If you'll remember Mark 4 verse 1, we find Jesus getting into the boat to give him a little bit of space from the crowds as he preached, and then he preached from the boat, but now he's been teaching all day and it's time to get going, and so the disciples join him in the boat as Jesus tells them that they're going to go across to the other side, probably to preach over there. But now an interesting piece of information that I came across this last week about the Sea of Galilee, is uh, this body of water that they're in, is that due to its being in a depression of about 700 feet below sea level, and due to the surrounding hilly landscape, it is a very common occurrence 
for the right mixture of temperatures and winds to cause magnificent storms to blow through suddenly on the lake. Storms in the Sea of Galilee have a reputation for being sudden and particularly violent. And that, it seems, is what happened here. The storm suddenly and violently came upon them. The waves began to be tossed into their boat, and the boat was filling up with water. And because of this, the disciples were afraid. Which leads to the first question in verse 38. But Jesus was in the snur and asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Of course, Jesus was probably exhausted after this full day of preaching. Most of you don't know that preaching can be a particularly exhausting activity, but it's tiring. And so Jesus, showing forth his true humanity and his trust in God, takes a nap. Sometimes you just need to take a nap. And since the disciples are freaking out right now, they shake him awake and they ask, do you not care what is happening right now? Do you not care about us? Now that's obviously a misguided question, perhaps even a cruel question. Of course he cares. That's why he's come in the first place. But can we be really frank with ourselves and one another just for a moment? This is a question we've all asked. Whenever the proverbial storms of life come, whenever you, whenever you get that dreaded diagnosis, whenever your child comes and confesses that they've blown it in ways that might change the trajectory of their life forever, Whenever you lose your job, whenever a parent, a sibling, a loved one, a spouse, a child dies, and, and you don't know what you'll do next, life has changed. Whenever hardship or disaster, natural disasters, come and change the course of your life, whenever hardship comes in any form, calamity, illness, injury, loss, we can tend to ask, where are you? I thought you were going to take care of me. Why are you asleep? Do you even care? You might not verbalize it. Well, those questions often come to mind. These kinds of storms are inevitable in life. I mean, think of it. It was Jesus' idea to get in the boat and head across in the first place. He plans and permits these kinds of storms to enter into our lives. Being a Christian is no guarantee that we will avoid life's storms. And when we do, in the midst of them sometimes, we can be more marked by reactivity and fear and anxiety than we are by faith and trust. And so we ask, do you care? Do you care? And to this question, you know, Jesus doesn't immediately answer with words. He answers with action, with a, a demonstration of his power in verse 39 as we see the great calm. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace! Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. We've seen the great storm in the first question. Here we see the great calm. And now we should be careful here because this passage has been abused far too many times as a way of telling people that if you only come to Jesus when life storms assail you, that he will send them all away. That Jesus is your, your cosmic genie who will lead you into a life of ease and painlessness if you only make your wish. 
And that's just not what this passage is showing us. It's not meant to reveal that. Indeed, one day Christ will calm every storm in this world and all of our sufferings and difficulties and hardships will be no more. But until then, life's storms are a certainty. And so don't be misled to see this passage as revealing that the Christian life is one of painlessness and ease. It's not meant to reveal that. Instead, it's meant to reveal Christ. And namely, two truths about Christ. First, it shows us, it demonstrates to us that he does care. He does care. Of course he cares. Again, it's the whole reason he's in the boat with them as a human being adorning human vesture. It's all because he cares. The whole reason that he has come and stepped into our humanity and into our hardship is because he cares. And now that he's stepped into our humanity and hardship, the author of Hebrews tells us he sympathizes with us. His heart sympathizes with us in our sufferings, in our trials, in our hardships. When life storms come, he's not distant or indifferent. He's not cold or aloof. He cares for us, and his heart yearns for us deeply. He does care. But then this passage also shows us more than that. It shows us also that Jesus is divine, that he is God, that he is almighty, that he is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful, that he is glorious beyond measure. Notice he simply says the word, peace be still, and there's a great calm. The elements obey him. What kind of power does someone have to have to do that? To simply speak to the created order, to nature, to the elements, and they obey. That is power that only the creator God has. And in fact, the scriptures attest to this in several places. You can see this in Job 12, 15, Job 28, 25, Psalm 33, 77, 107, 147, and more. Psalm 65, verses 6 to 8 tells us, That God is the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Jesus is God. He is almighty. He is the Lord of the storm. He's girded with strength and majesty and dominion. He has authority over all things, over the elements and the winds and the waves and the rain. He is sovereign over the many storms that we meet with in this life. None of them take him by surprise. None of them are outside of his control. And he demonstrates this with the, weir- with the mere words of his mouth, bringing this great calm leads us to the second question, verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? After rebuking the storm, he turns and rebukes the weakness of his disciples' faith. And and please don't misunderstand, he's not saying that, that all fear in all circumstances is sinful or necessarily a sign of immaturity. Fear in one sense is 
by God's mercy, just a biological, hormonal response to a perceived threat. God created our bodies to to respond to threatening circumstances with increased awareness and sharpened senses for our protection and preservation. And it's often defined as fear. God's merciful to do that for us. So it's not necessarily just fear here that Jesus is rebuking. It is the, the measure and misdirection and what they did with their fear that he's rebuking. Notice he says, why are you so afraid? Because they let their circumstances and their fear of their circumstances to be excessively large in their hearts. Their circumstances and their fear of their circumstances seems even to be larger in their hearts than God is. They let their circumstances and their fear of their circumstances bring into question the power and caring heart of Jesus Christ. And after all this time, They'd already seen him deliver people from demonic oppression. They've already seen him heal the crippled and lepers. They they ought to know his power here. They've seen it. They ought to know also that he cares. Again, he cleansed lepers. He healed the crippled. He forgave the unforgivable. He called tax collectors and sinners. He suffered the scorn of his family and the religious leaders in order to do all of this to help the needy, to heal the broken, to hail sinners into lives of wholeness and forgiveness. And yet one storm comes and they forget it all and they question his heart and his power. But then... As we often do in life storms, the disciples learn something invaluable. They learn the great fear, which brings us next to the great fear. We've seen a great storm, a great calm, now a great fear. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Now this, this is a, a new kind of fear, or, or um, maybe we should, it's, it's, it's a different kind of fear than the fear of the storm, or perhaps we should say that, that it's fear redirected. Now, at first, they were in fear of the storm. They had a misdirected fear because they believed that the storm was bigger than the one sleeping in the boat with them. But now their fear is redirected and rightly directed toward the one who is bigger than any storm we might face. Now, they fear the God who is with them in the boat, the Almighty One, the only one worthy of ultimate fear. And that might seem confusing to you at first thought. And not just, you know, this fear as it's spoken of in this passage here, but anytime you come across the many passages we find throughout the scriptures that, that speak of fearing God as a positive thing. You might think of 1 John 4.18, and you know, it tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Shouldn't we not fear God then? And that passage in 1 John 4.18 is speaking actually of, of fearing God's punishment at the end of the age, something we do not need to fear so long as we are in Christ. Christ has taken the punishment we deserve upon himself so that we can have the reward of eternal life that he alone deserves. And so, yes, we should not fear in that sense. If we're in Christ, we don't need to fear God's punishment. But there is a healthy kind of fear of God, a fear that we might describe as as having an overwhelming awe at who God is, who Christ is, being overwhelmed with awe at his 
power and grace and majesty and greatness, a fear that comes from knowing that he and not our circumstances is the big deal of the universe. That he's big, that he's bigger than big, that he's more real and more weighty than any stormful circumstances we might face. The disciples suddenly realized this on the boat, and so they were filled with great fear. Which leads to the third and last question. Verse 41 again, And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? And that is the question, isn't it? We've already seen that he is indeed God alone, who is able to rule over the wind and the waves in this way. God alone is the true sovereign of creation. He alone commands nature and elements. Job 12, 15 says that if he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Psalm 147, 18 says he makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Job 28, 25 to 26 says He gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Psalm 33, 6-8 says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. He is almighty. He is omnipotent. He is God. We ought to fall down and worship at his feet, be in awe of his awesome majesty and power. He is God. But then that's not all. Who then is this? This this God who is sovereign over us and over all of the created order. But here, confined in a boat, so exhausted from his long day that he needs to take a nap. Friends, he's not only God, he he is God with us. He is God who stepped into the storm, who stepped into this life and this stormy creation. He got into the boat with us. Isn't that something? Does he care? Yes, he cares. Again, he's already demonstrated it so far. He's healed and delivered and called. But what's more is that he will go on to demonstrate it in a way that proves it without question he cares. And we know this because he not only stepped into the storm of this life to be with us, but he stepped into the storm of death for us and not just any kind of death. He stepped into a death wherein he endured the storm of God's judgment, the storm that we deserve. The only storm that could truly end us for good, the only storm that could be and lead to our ultimate and eternal demise, that storm. He endured the cross so that we wouldn't have to meet with that storm. Who is this then? This is God. Is God above us? He's God with us, and he's God for us on a cross, suffering, dying, as our substitute. And all because he cares. Does he care? Yes, he cares. Can you trust him? You can trust him. 
two brief encouragements for you to take home with you this morning. First, when the storms and fear come, respond with faith. When storms and fear come, respond with faith. Good friends, storms will come. They are inevitable. They are certain. You will get the dreaded diagnosis. You will have familial issues. You will meet with harm and accidents and difficulties and natural disasters. You will lose your job or your family members or your friends. It is tragically part and parcel of living in a fallen world. We can't avoid it. But you don't need to be crippled by fear and anxiety because of it. You don't need to be marked by a kind of reactivity due to the potential of these difficulties or in the face of these difficulties should they come. You don't need to let the storms of life in this world create storms of worry and anxiety inside your chest. You can be courageous. You can be content. You can be at peace. You can be resilient. You can be at rest. And that's not to say that fear will be entirely absent from your life. That's not to say that we won't have moments wherein we're tempted to freak out. But what you do when those times and moments come will make all the difference. If you remember who Jesus is as God over us, God with us, and God for us, you will remember that you have better reasons actually to not be afraid. One of my children and me, we kind of had a nightly routine for several months last year. We'd be heading up to his room upstairs at night to get him ready for bed, and all the lights would be off up there, and it's dark outside because it's getting late. And so it was dark upstairs, and we'd be walking up together, and pretty much every night for several months, he would get frightened from the dark and say, oh, no, there's monsters. And I'd say, it's, it's okay, buddy. Don't be afraid. There's no monster. And he would say, oh, yeah, monster's not real. I would remind him of what was true, what was real. I would remind him that he actually has better reasons for not being afraid than he does to be afraid. I've been helped by a short write-up by Scott Swain on this issue called The Heart is Not a Cup. And then he's trying to help readers understand the biblical conception of the heart and how it relates to fear in our lives. And as Westerners, we can tend to think of the heart as a cup. It's like a cup. So a cup can be filled with tea or coffee or bourbon or Coke Zero, depending on your fancy. And if it's filled with one thing and you want to fill it with something else, you just pour out the contents and you put the other contents in it. But that's not really a, an apt illustration of the biblical conception of the heart. The biblical conception of the heart honors the complexity of our inner selves and views the heart more like a, a set of balance scales. Scales that consider and weigh things and thereby comes to conclusions about how we ought to respond and live in light of life's circumstances. And inevitably, you will meet with circumstances and potential circumstances in your life that set weight on the side of fear. But what this passage is calling us to do is to place Christ on the other side of the scale. The, the Christ who is bigger and who outweighs all of the worst that this life and world can throw at us. And so counsel with this kind of conception of the heart might sound something like this. Say, I know your heart is rightly heavy. 
with sorrow due to the loss of some good things, or that you're overwhelmed with fear by present circumstances, that it's uncertain what tomorrow may bring. However, let me offer you this counterweight, not to necessarily remove those emotions, like the cup metaphor, but to place them in relation to a larger reality, the reality of God's sovereign goodness, his attention, his purpose, which offers solid reasons for encouragement and hope in the midst of trial. What this passage offers us is the heaviest counterweight possible. It offers for us a God who is over us, who is sovereign over the storm. God with us, who stepped in, therefore, sympathizing with us in the midst of the storm. And God for us, who died so that we are freed from the worst possible storm we could face. We have better reasons to not be afraid. And so we don't need to be crippled by fear and anxiety. We can trust him. He is for us. He has already shown us that he is. Second, when storms and fear come, respond with fear. When storms and fear come, respond with fear. Again, friends, fear being in this state of overwhelming awe towards something. It is an unavoidable fact of life. We are built, created for awe, for this kind of fear. The question then is, what are we in awe of? By what are we overwhelmed with awe? Sometimes we are more overwhelmed by and in awe of the events and circumstances of this life than we are of Christ and his great majesty. I've already said it, storms come, difficulties come, hard circumstances come, sufferings come, and sometimes when they do, we show that we're in far more more in awe of our circumstances than we are of Christ. This is obvious because when this happens, you'll, you'll, you'll stay up at night rehearsing the worst that could possibly happen over and over and over again in your mind. You'll you'll carry around with you an overwhelming sense of, I am alone. Crippled by fear, anxiety, worry, practicing escapism, trying to ignore our problems altogether. Or maybe you'll go type A and seek to control every element of your life, living delusionally and making everyone crazy around you in the process. All because we're more in awe of our circumstances than we are of Christ. These kinds of responses and others, they they might show us that we're unhealthily afraid. And the call then is to redirect our fear towards something that's truly worthy of it. Paul Tripp, he, he perhaps put it best when he once wrote that people who live in fear who beat themselves up with way too many what-if questions or who have trouble turning off their minds when they go to bed, don't have a circumstances problem. They have an awe problem. You and I will only rest in situations over which we have no control if we are in awe of the one who controls them all for his glory and for our good. Friends, being in awe of your circumstances, that's one way to live life. But it's not good. It's not healthy. It doesn't lead to flourishing, contented, peace-filled, resilient living. For that, we have to have something or someone, rather, far bigger than our circumstances that we're in awe of. And the good news is this. You may have big storms 
in your life, but you have a bigger Christ for your storms. And if you redirect your misdirected awe toward the one who is far more awesome than whatever storms you might face, when you're more in awe of Christ than you are your circumstances, well, that will give you courage in the midst of your storms. That will give you peace. That will give you contentedness. That will give you resilience in the midst of your storms. Again, Paul Tripp put it well. He said, the only thing that has power to defeat fear is fear. Only when the grander fear of God rules your heart will you be free of all the little fears in your life that chip away at your heart. When you live in a reverential awe of the magnitude of God's power and authority and are stunned by the fact that he exercises his power for his glory and your good, then you can be free from all the anxieties that make you timid and rob you of joy. Do you see, as John Wesley put it earlier, the difference between him that feareth God and him that feareth not? Do you see the difference it makes when all the world around you is raging, when finances are low, when the future looks bleak, when illness or injury or calamity comes, even when the the storms of life rage all around us? When everything seems out of control, fearing Christ will calm that storm inside your chest. He is the Lord of the storm. Don't let your circumstances tell you who God is. Let Mark 4, 35 through 41 tell you who God is and then trust him and fear him. Let's pray. Father, we ask for help now, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word also, to carry this with us into our lives this week and forevermore so that we might trust Christ and fear him. As our eyes have beheld him this morning, help us to to see him more and more clearly as the storms of life come, that we might be people at rest, resilient people, courageous people, no matter what comes. We pray in Jesus' name.